things tend to go wrong in production, especially for new systems, new applications. And when I have to be tasked to figure out what went wrong, then I start to care very deeply about observability. Designing for observability is not something that's just done. It's part of a process and that process needs feedback. I need to understand what my developers are spending their time on, understand, well, what things do I need to put in on the observability side to make their lives easier? Hi, I'm Liz Fong Jones. And I'm Charity Majors. And you're listening to Observability Cast, or OllieCast for short, a fortnightly series about the art and science of making production systems observable, easy to maintain, and appropriately reliable. OllieCast is brought to you by HeavyBit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest in this show, or if you have a specific topic you'd like us to dive into, you can reach us on Twitter at OllieCast. I try to stick around on my clients until the, the projects actually go to production and hopefully uh, after that as well. So I learned about it pretty quickly because things tend to go wrong in production, especially for, for new systems and new applications. And when I have to be tasked to figure out what went wrong, then I start to care very deeply about observability. So you don't throw things over the wall. You definitely encourage your teams to practice kind of full cycle ownership of their code. Is there even a wall anymore? Like, it feels like there never should have been a wall. <laughs> and we've been busy tearing the wall down. Um, and there are remnants of the wall. But like, is there still a wall out there for most people? There is. Um, I do get to interact with a, a pretty wide variety of clients. And when the whole DevOps movement came about, as people got further down the adoption curve, Large organizations assume that that meant I need a DevOps department, which is hilarious because... Yeah, I know. Oh, my God. (laughs) You just missed the point. So I I still see that sometimes, but less and less. So like my current current client and team, our operations person is is on our team sitting next to us. And so we're working directly with them to figure out uh, what we need to do on the development side to help make their job better and what things they need to make our job better and, and kind of work hand in hand. Who's on call? So, <laughs> uh, depends on how severe the the issue is. But right now, it's still mm-hmm. the like there's still tiers of support for my clients. Mm-hmm. Um, but eventually, it does come back to a developer. If, if something is a high enough severity, then we're going to be called to figure out what's going wrong, especially if it's a high kind of high critical issue. Yeah. How has the process been for our engineers? Like, I feel like it's so often this lost opportunity because it's pitched to them as like, you've got to eat your vegetables, right? Now you too must suffer. Like we in ops have suffered for so long, right? But like, we're engineers. Like we want to write good code. We want to do things well. And we want to see the fruits of our effort, right? Like, don't we enjoy figuring things out? Yeah, but not necessarily at 2 a.m. on a Friday or Sunday. That's not as much fun. And I've definitely been on those kinds of clients and projects. So it does take a little bit of feeling of the pain to understand you know, what does need to improve yeah. in order to not have those 2 a.m. calls. How many times do you think is reasonable for an engineer to get woken up at 2 a.m. and say, how many times per year? <laughs> well, I would say once is enough before they realize, I don't want that to ever happen again. So, okay. So, obviously, this is a leading question. Perhaps I have thoughts and feelings on this topic. I don't know. You know, and there's no right answer. You know, it depends on where you're at in terms of the stability and earliness, blah, 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 all the caveats, sure, right? But I do feel like, you know, the process of putting engineers on call has to be met with an equal commitment from management to giving them enough time to solve the problems so that they're not woken up, right? 
The only thing worse than being woken up at 2 a.m. is being woken up at 2 a.m. night after night after night. Yeah. And, and knowing how to fix it, but not being given time away from the product roadmap to do it. So it, it usually takes one time for that to happen, for suddenly those kinds of features to be get prioritized. Like we, we need these kinds of yeah. operations tools. Yeah. But yeah, it, if that doesn't get prioritized properly and given the right amount of budget and time, then you have a staying around problem. People will leave. Totally. Exactly. And, and I mean, I feel like it is reasonable to ask an engineer to own a service and get woken up two or three times a year. Right? Like, I think I would ask that of, of anyone except for people with new babies. Like, people with new babies or people who have serious sleep problems, like, I would totally exempt them from that. Right? But I do feel like, you know, it's a serious responsibility and ownership is real. And I feel like I, that's like a, a good balance. So now is a good time for you to introduce yourself. So yes, I'm Jimmy Bogard, a consultant out of Austin, Texas. I've been in software consulting for, oh gosh, 14 years or so now. And before that, worked in product, worked in IT, worked in startup, and consulting I like the best because if I don't like the client, I can just wait six months and I have another one. <laughs> there are not many of you. Are there not? There aren't, No. I guess not. There are not many independent consultants, right? Like there are the McKinsey's of the world, right? But yeah. definitely in terms of people who are paying out their own shingle and getting results, that is a very small set. Yeah. Do you find your clients listening by word of mouth or? Yeah, for the most part. I do a lot of you know blogging and speaking and things like that to more or less accidentally have built up some of it, a personal brand in the .NET world. Mm-hmm. So I don't find it terribly difficult, but I think I'm very fortunate in that case. Yeah, that's interesting. .NET. So, if I was to like name a software engineering community that is stereotypically as far away from operations as you can get, that would probably be one of the ones I would come up with. Is that fair or not? Oh, I know, I know. It's it's especially frustrating as I'm trying to introduce these kinds of concepts to the organizations. Yeah. And then only to realize, like, okay, I want to introduce this tool. I go to the SDKs. And .NET's at the very bottom of the list. We're just about everything, right? Yeah. Okay, I want to introduce Kubernetes. Yeah. Well, there's the tooling is years behind. Even enterprise Java, yeah. which is I consider more enterprisey, but somehow they made it much further along in the observability space. So, is this just a hangover from Microsoft's reputation, or what? Do you have any theories? Uh, there's a couple of things. Like most of my clients still have a lot of on-prem deployments, and so they they really look towards mm. Microsoft to fill a lot of those gaps for them. Mm-hmm. And Microsoft hasn't filled those gaps, so they just haven't bothered. And when you still run giant monolithic systems, the need for things like distributed tracing just aren't really there. But as they started to make this move, they realized, okay, the company's been running you know Jaeger for years. We don't have that at all. So we have to kind of build that from the ground up for ourselves. Mm. But I imagine that because .NET is a you know virtual machine based uh, language, like there must be reasonably good single host APM tools that at least provide some kind of a learning path. Has that been your experience, or like what does that learning path look like when people go, okay, I'm moving from monolith to distributed, and what are those analogies that I can kind of grasp for? Sure. Um, so the story is definitely getting a lot better. About 10 years ago, I was part of a big monolith. To, it wasn't even called microservice. The term didn't exist at the time, but services, mm-hmm. service-oriented architecture. And then, yeah, day one of production, when we flipped the switch, something went wrong. We had zero insight into what went wrong. You're literally like trying to like craft like mind castles in the sky, just like trying to reason about where your packet could be and what it could look like. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds familiar. And so we, <laughs> we, haven't, we wound up having to build a lot of other tools ourselves, like having to discover even what 
distributed tracing needs in order to function that you need these like identifiers and parent identifiers and you have to have propagation and you need to identify this request versus that request. <laughs> you know, it makes me sad slash scared to just think of how many of us reinvented tracing out there in the wild on our own. Oh, <laughs> and also how many people tried the off-the-shelf things from five or ten years ago and were sorely disappointed because it was too complex. Yeah, they're just like, oh, this is not worth it. Yeah, we have a, we have some clients that now that they've moved towards this more distributed model, try the sort of easy mode, which is doing a lot of like auto instrumentation and then finding that that's sorely lacking because some component doesn't have it working for them for whatever reason. Right. And now they have to roll a whole bunch of custom vendor specific code to try to plug those holes. Mm, so I guess that's kind of how you came to the open telemetry community then is by starting from this position of, you know, what resources are out there for a vendor independent uh, instrumentation. Yeah, and that's exactly it. Because uh, being a consultant, I get to see a lot of different kinds of observability tools and practice, and especially hosting providers. And so you can't just count on a single kind of tool to be in place. And because, especially in the .NET world, the SDKs are typically the last ones to be developed, it was usually me having to develop those plugins for whatever next observability tool someone was using in that, in that client. And I was getting tired of developing, okay, I have to develop this Zipkin plugin for RabbitMQ, but that'll go away because the next client's going to use something else. They're going to use App Insights. And it just got really old. I'm so curious. Have you ever showed up at a client and just been like blown away by how awesome their telemetry was? No. But <laughs> I'm a consultant though, so I only get called when things are wrong. <laughs> I guess I guess you're kind of like a trauma surgeon, right? Like they don't call me for the easy cases. <laughs> no, exactly. But like it's so mystifying to me because, you know, we all crave impact, right? Like we all we want to like, you know, it's kind of so it's it's thrilling to like put in a small amount of effort and just like watch like just a mushroom cloud of impact. Like that's awesome. As long as it's not a literal mushroom cloud, you get what I'm saying, you know? And yet, like if I try to think about where, where people can apply effort that reliably pays off just from like orders of magnitude of benefits, it's an instrumentation it's an observability and like shedding light on things. And just like, I feel like so much of the technical debt it doesn't just come down to lack of being able to see things, but it starts there and then it grows. Hmm. I guess the interesting question that I'd ask, though, is like, you know, is it because people have been not investing in trying to do telemetry or is it that their previous investments haven't worked out well, right? Like we've all been in the shop where they log everything using printf debug statements, right? Like where they invest a lot of effort into it, right? Like the kind of full text indexing. And, and I think that like, I've definitely been at places where we invested a shit ton of, of effort into like our monitoring tools and they were useful. They paid off inside the ops team but not outside of it because it's almost like so much translation was required to, to like translate the language of low level systems, you know, counters and statistics into the, the stuff that would make sense to software engineers that they kind of needed us to stand next to them and explain it all the time. And I feel like maybe that's one of the leaps that I feel like we're starting to make is making tools that are way more powerful available to people that is kind of, it's in the language that you write in every day. Like, endpoints and variables and like it should feel familiar to a software engineer who sits down and and looks at it so maybe that will help i definitely see an education gap because people are seeing symptoms but don't understand the disease 
at all. They don't know understand what questions they need to be asking to say, this is the thing that we actually need to know what tools can help them solve those problems. They see that they're spending sometimes a week trying to diagnose a problem, but don't understand that, well, if they had these specific tools in place, then that would have taken a second to understand or to ask that question, have it answered by a tool for you. Right. Mm, it's kind of that like lack of imagination, right? Like people can't imagine that there's something that solves it or right. Like they just assume this is the way that it has to be. Or like, this is for people who are like, you know, way more sophisticated than I am not realizing that there are actually solutions appropriate to where they are. I think it's also maybe that we're used to tools where we can craft specific answers. Like how many times do you remember like, okay, I've, I've got this problem. I struggle and I wrestle with it. And the days later, I figure it out. Cool. I figured out how to ask this question. So then I, what, I create a dashboard so that I always have the answer to that question up and I leave it there. And this is why our past is like littered with the trail of <laughs> ancient dashboards. But like the idea of making it so that I can ask this kind of question easily and repeatedly in any circumstance is kind of a level of abstraction above that that we aren't used to, maybe. I don't know about YouTube, but one of the things I also run into is just the complexities of the budgets of who pays for this tool in companies. Mm. Oh my God. <laughs> that is so frustrating for us right now. Like Because it, ops teams hold the budget but like the people who need to use Honeycomb are people who are writing code and in the trenches with it every day who are most often, sadly, because in my world, this is not the case, but right. But in the median case, those are not ops people. Those are software engineers. So who's going to fit that bill? <laughs> so who, yeah. So it's kind of like, you know, yeah, you, you have to sell to one while another is paying and that's not great. The other situation I've often seen is kind of the centralized omnibus budget for logging vendors, right? Where one team, which is, you know, probably the ops team just takes on the ownership of their, you know, six-figure uh, Splunk bill or whatever it be, right? Mm -hmm. And then they don't wind up doing chargeback, right? They wind up just having teams just send all their logs to that kind of fire hosing all of their logs to that one team. And it's not even a vendor bill necessarily. It's people who are growing their own elk clusters, right? And it winds up being right, like the teams that are sending all of this garbage don't wind up paying the cost for it. And then when those teams instead try to spend money on something better, right, then they're told, why are you spending money, right? Right. So how have you found kind of navigating and helping sell that to your clients, Jimmy? I kind of go the, the gorilla route, which is I'm going to get something deployed in a container that is just visible to my dev environment. And like, just let's, let's start getting the developers using it as a kind of a local development tool or just for the dev environment. And then we can start to then sell and show the value to say, hey, remember that, that thing we're trying to fix just in the dev environment because, you know, I'm trying to get acceptance of something. That took five minutes to answer as opposed to, it used to take a week. Mm -hmm. So that was X amount of dollars that we saved on that time. And we could now spend it on something more important. We are so bad at quantifying the cost of our time as engineers. And part of it is because we love what we do, but it's hard to see it as work sometimes. And part of it is just because, I don't know, it's, it's, a, it's another conversion step. Like, I don't know, like the number of hours that people spend wrestling with this stuff, it far outstrips any vendor bill that they're paying. But it's, it's really hard to see it in those terms. Or like the people who are like, I'm going to staff a team to build an observability tool internally like and it's not just the cost of the team there but like the opportunity cost the loss of focus on the business like this is one thing that we are seeing now with the economic downturn is a lot of people who were planning on hiring their own teams to do these things are suddenly now looking at the fact that their headcount is frozen for the next you know who knows how long and i feel like that's actually helping people 
think more concretely about, okay, my engineering cycles are precious and rare. Should I be spending them on what's core to my business? And is, you know, is this it? Which is actually maybe a good side effect. I don't know. TBD, I guess. The other thing that I thought was super interesting about what Jimmy said about kind of starting with the dev environment is that usually like if you're using a telemetry provider, right, and sending your telemetry somewhere for the volumes you encounter in a dev environment, there's actually not that much cost associated with it, right? Like you can often get that for free. And I think yeah. that, that... And the problems aren't that hard. Yeah, we right now we're just strictly using it just as, as, as that kind of uh, distributed debugging tool, knowing that we'll be having to answer more complicated questions in the future. But just trying to clear hurdles for the developers to really focus on adding value as opposed to just spelunking and trying to you know go through logs and jump like that. What does that mean for you, adding value? Um, I don't know. I, I, I used to do a whole bunch of like lean software stuff before I got jaded with the whole agile <laughs> uh, stuff. And so I, I would often go through these exercises with customers of, of doing the whole value stream mapping of you know, uh, mapping out value add activities versus value detracting and saying, you know, there's value in the answer you have for the customer, but not necessarily the amount of time it takes you to get the answer. The value is in the answer, not in the work. Mm, interesting. So how did you first become involved in open telemetry? Kind of what was your introduction to it? It was, I guess, about six to nine months ago. I was seeing the problem of this current client who was needing distributed tracing. And they did not have a target yet of what tool they wanted to use to achieve that. We saw a tool that they're using today, but it was using auto-instrumentation. And even worse, it was using log, uh, strictly log parsing to, to kind of infer spans and traces. Oh, God. And I, of course, like, I don't want to build on top of uh, vendor-specific headers. I don't want to build on top of this proprietary API. And then that's not portable. I can't take that to the next client, nor if they decide to go something else, that's all wasted work. Just all gets chunked out the door. Yeah. So you just start, you know, you start looking, well, what is out there? Just, you know, start Googling open source tracing. And that's why I first got introduced to the, I guess, open tracing project and open census before that all got merged together. Mm-hmm. I got to say, I was a little dubious. Um, you know, it is like littered with the past corpses of, of projects that have tried to do this and failed, and it's now yet another one. Right, the old XKCD comic about, you know, there are 20 standards, let's introduce one standard to solve all of them, now there are 21 standards, right? But I think kind of commitment to sunsetting the old things is is what really drove kind of adoption. That's what we're seeing actually happening in the Microsoft world. They're not quite the new Microsoft, there's still lots of old Microsoft, you know, anti-OSS stuff. But at least with the open telemetry stuff, we're seeing that they're modifying their published APIs to better support open telemetry. Mm. So the folks that are on the opentelemetry.net side include someone that actually works at Microsoft. So they're able to go back and make changes to the APIs to ensure that open telemetry works better with it and that new components can work better with it as well. So that's what really encouraged me is like it's not something that has no support from Microsoft because like it or not, in the Microsoft world, our, our teams expect to get spoon-fed from them. Yeah. So it was good to see that there was kind of first-class support from them on this project. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. In our world, we develop in Golang. And part of what makes Golang work particularly well for us in distributed tracing is the fact that everything in Golang expects to be passed a context object, right? Like it's kind of this basic thing that results in it being easier to plumb things through all of your methods. And then you have the data in place to make those distributed calls traced afterwards. So that is one huge challenge, I think, this Microsoft has in their .NET world versus really any of the other platforms being supported 
is they don't have that easy ability just to just to wrap or pass things through anything. So Java, you can do bytecode weaving. JavaScript, you can do whatever the hell you want because it's JavaScript. And so they actually need to bake the support in and release it as part of the libraries they publish. And so that's why I was really excited to see them directly support it because they would have to do that in order for open telemetry to be able to hook into the right places to be able to publish out the things it needs. Mm-hmm. But at a certain point, right, like in their self-interest, right, it's a competitive thing, right? Like if the language that they are promoting heavily does not include support for distributed tracing out of the box, then it will be an inferior language for de- developing microservices and distributed systems. They kind of have to do this almost. Yes, I think so. <laughs> um, especially with Azure becoming as big as it is money-wise, and they're seeing, at least me personally, there's a huge gap in their built-in tooling for observability. I mean, they have app insights, but it's just not the same as other observability tools I've used. Yeah, definitely it's a common pattern that kind of cloud provider instrumentation is okay, right? Like if you're running on the cloud, but it's definitely not a substitute for kind of full application dedicated observability that's not coupled specifically to your cloud provider. I think that's where they got to it because they did that two or three years ago where they just tried to bake in their tool to everything and very quickly they realized that's just not gonna that's just not gonna work. We can't re-release our entire stack just because our specific observability tool changed an API. Just that can't work. Mm. So you played around with open telemetry, you realized that it solved some problems, and then you started writing about it, which is why, you know, how we first heard of you and invited you onto the show. So kind of what were the kind of key things you wanted people to learn from your blog post, which we'll also uh, link in the show notes? Oh, sure. So part of it was just education, just understanding that this project exists and that we should, you know, if you're doing any kind of distributed systems, you need to be keeping an eye on this to understand how it's going to affect you. Another big thing was just understanding how the built-in observability tools inside of Microsoft, how they're changing those tools to be able to better support projects like this. So I work with a pretty wide variety of uh, systems and components in production, and Microsoft only has two or three of those supporting any kind of tracing out of the box. So if I'm coming somewhere new and I need to extend some library to include support for observability, then I wanted to have some breadcrumbs from other folks to at least learn how I, you know, how I did it and hopefully how they can help do that in the future. Mm, that makes a lot of sense, right? Because you have to persuade people that, you know, there is a need to add observability uh, hooks into their libraries, or better yet, for them to just add observability into their libraries to begin with. And that requires people to appreciate the value. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. What do you see uh, being the tipping point for people who, you know, if you've seen any converts who have gone from being, you know, dubious to being rabid partisans, <laughs> or like even just like being accepting of, you know, yes, this is worth it. You must have seen like this journey in a lot of customers now. Like, what what are the common themes, or what tends to like widen people's eyes and get them on board? Honestly, the first time someone sees any kind of distributed tracing UI, they're usually just blown away because they've wanted that so long. Yeah, and they're probably so tired of just digging through Splunk or something and trying to retrace the steps and figure out what the heck happened. Because the problem with logs is you have to know what you're looking for. Before you can find it. Yeah, they're fine for what their, their purpose is, but they're not an end-all be-all. Yeah. So that's usually, I show them like, look, here's XYZ distributed tracing UI. Isn't this great? <laughs> yeah, but there's, if it was that easy, we would all be happily using traces and all this stuff. Like, what? why isn't it that easy? Well, in the .NET world, it's not that easy. 
the, that's what open telemetry is really helping to solve is is it just friction and tooling is that the only reason um for me the microsoft plan it is yeah so in my experience it's not simply the lack of tooling so if i i for example if i wanted to just pick zipkin Zipkin itself in the .NET world only might have extensions for two of the three components I'm using. But if I'm using RabbitMQ, there is no support for that. So now I got to write that. I'm using MongoDB. That doesn't exist. I got to do that. I picked literally any of the other platforms that those tracing tools support. It would be super easy. But it's like, okay, I have to write code for my clients and they have to spend my hours to do so. And are they going to recoup that? Yeah, exactly. Like this is kind of the argument that we had was like, you know, hey, why should we as an industry be employing an army of, you know, hundreds of solutions engineers to write integrations for everything when we could just do it once and be done? When we started talking to people about tracing, there were two things we heard over and over and over that were problems. Number one, that you had to instrument everything before you even got partial benefit. And that was really like, frustrating for a lot of people because like they have to take it on faith that it is going to be that valuable and worth their time and then number two that like over and over again like it would turn into a a thing where like yes they would have deployed tracing but one person knows how to use it and everybody goes to that person when they need to see something traced and it's never really like become something that is just like part of the average engineer's toolkit even in places that do have a very extensive you know deployment have you experienced that or has it not been that way Yes, unfortunately. <laughs> so I can show them the picture of the trace and that's great. But there's the second part of it is, okay, let's actually practice how to use it. So yeah. sometimes what I'll do is I'll, I'll make some API endpoint, just throw an exception, throw an error. It's like, okay, well, let's yeah. deep down somewhere. So let's, let's diagnose this and figure out and you know, kind of give them the, the shortcuts to understand when something goes wrong, here are the, you know, here's the quick way you can figure out what the heck happens and go back from there. Mm, Yeah, the thing that I characterize that problem as is it's not just gathering the traces, it's being able to find the right trace, right? Like you can't just have a, you know, giant collection of traces that no one ever looks at because no one knows how to find the right trace. You kind of have to incorporate it into people's existing flows Mm -hmm. around, you know, being able to go all the way from here's the high level graph, here's the error rate. Oh, no, the error rate. It's an education problem, but it points to weaknesses in our tooling. And this is why like Honeycomb from the very beginning was so focused on we don't build for individuals, we build for teams because we realized that like the act of collaborating with other people, like publishing snippets of your brain and like making your history available to yourself and other people, like even for people who don't think of collaboration as being that important, it is always important because when you're debugging, you're always collaborating with like your past self and when, <laughs> when you're writing instrumentation, you're collaborating with your future self. And if you could make those really solid and really grounded in things like it yes it helps it helps the entire team but it also helps you <laughs> i don't know about you but like when i'm working on a part of the system like i know everything about that like intensely but after i've stopped after i've moved on to something else like it decays my knowledge decay when you're working on a large distributed system like part of it lives in your head part of it lives in every other member of your team said, but each of you is responsible for the whole thing, right? You have to be able to know your part intimately, but then you have to be able to debug and trace it through the whole thing. So I feel like this has been a real gap in products that have been built so far with the exception of honeycomb, (laughs) (laughs) but like inevitably, like other people have got to start thinking this way about like, you know, wearing grooves in the system as you're as you're using it, so that the way that the expert user debugs and understands and and learns 
so that that knowledge isn't lost and it isn't locked up in our heads, but it's in a centrally available source of truth that we all have equal access to so that we can democratize it. And so that if that one expert leaves your team, they don't take all of their knowledge with you. And if people are interested in learning more about this, uh, they should definitely listen to the last episode that we published or two episodes ago, the episode with Jessica Kerr, because that was kind of her central theme, right? Is sympathy, the idea of joint work between multiple humans and multiple systems. Yeah. Uh, Jessica Tron, she's great. She's really wonderful. She really is. So so one of the things I try to emphasize with my teams here is that designing for observability is not something that's just done. It's part of a process and that process needs feedback. So I need to understand what my developers are spending their time on to understand, well, what things do I need to put in on the observability side to make their lives easier? But that's never, that's not something that's just, okay, we've, we've ticked the box. Now it's done. Something that still requires feedback to continually approve. Yeah. Yeah, it's a continuous process, right? Like it's why Charity likes to talk about observability-driven development the same way we would do testing-driven development, right? Like you kind of have to bake it into a continuous process with that feedback loop. Yeah, and this goes back to the lean stuff that you were talking about too, because like I feel like, you know, software engineers, they kind of have this the system in their heads, like they write the code, they, you know, they test it. And then once it's tested, their job is done, right? Like, test pass <laughs> i can merge it and go home where like that's just like the pretest, right that's just like the all right let's just make sure there are no regressions no obvious things but then you're not testing that shit till you're rolling it out in prod you're not testing it until people are interacting with it and you're not testing it because like you know let's start with the fact that like nobody's staging environment in any way resembles production it just doesn't and it never will and it's better for us to just admit that and accept it and start embracing prod as part of our you know test loop than to keep chasing this like fucking dragon that doesn't exist (laughs) (laughs) even if it was possible you know no one's going to pay for it for one thing and and even if they were willing to pay for it, even if we did, and like the gold standard is capture and replay, right? Mm-hmm. I've written this piece of software myself. I know for fucking three databases now, capture 24 hours worth of traffic and replay them, you know, with various knobs. Even if you did all that, even if you would pay for it, you know, users are, are chaos engines. You know, it's like the Michael Jackson death problem. Like it had never happened before. <laughs> <laughs> Tomorrow is not today and it never will be. And the harder we fight that, the more problems we're going to have. We should just embrace it. Like we embrace failure. It happens all the time. It's fine. The point is not to make things not fail. The point is to, to make it so that it, users can't tell, that it doesn't impact them, that it's graceful, that it's not fatal. Right. Well, I wish my business could think that too. <laughs> well, you know, I feel like people need to feel safe. If you're asking them to accept this risk and this failure and stuff, you, you need to help them feel safe and oriented, which starts with putting the fucking glasses on so that you can see where you are. Right. Like if you're hurtling down the highway and you're as blind as I am, and you don't have your glasses on, everything's going to be scary. Right. And it's not that it doesn't take skill and like, effort and focus and prioritization and all these things. But like, first you have to be able to see where you're at and get rapid feedback about your actions. And I really feel like people who've grown up with, you know, the last couple decades of, of technology haven't really adjusted to just how detailed, how specific, how exact, how, how much visibility they should expect from their systems, how much is reasonable. And, and like, the bar just needs to be raised in people's heads. And they need to realize it's for them too. It's not just for Google and Facebook. 
and, and you're not in the Bay Area, which I love. I, I really like talking to people who are not inside our bubble, right? Like, do you encounter this perception or this kind of sense of preemptive defeat very often out there in the field of just like, yeah, well, we're not Google or Facebook. We don't get nice things. This is as good as we can do. This is as good as we should accept for ourselves. Yeah, pretty frequently. But I guess that's one advantage to being a consultant is I, I'm trying to be there to help them solve the problems that they know about, but also kind of find their their unspoken needs as well. And things like observability are definitely one of those areas. Yeah, um, I meet teams that say, you know, we've got our quarterly release process, and I, you know, my stomach turns, but you know, I'm there to help them do better. <laughs> uh, you see the Dora report, right? Where they've got their, you know, year over year, they publish their, you know, here are your metrics if you're an elite team or if you're a high performing team. You know, and year over year for the last couple of years, the bottom 50% has actually like lost ground. Oh, no. Well, you know, <laughs> the top 50% is accelerating, like they're getting better faster. Yeah, the, the good performers are becoming great performers, and then the middle performers are actually regressing back to low performers, and we have to fix that. Which is because, like, if you're standing still in tech, you're losing ground because chaos is is always increasing. You know, entropy is out to get you. Like, things are getting harder, and if you're just standing still, if you're just doing the same thing as you were doing six months ago, a year ago, two years ago, uh, things are not staying in place. They're getting worse, and it's not your imagination. <laughs> like, it's, it's, a, it's a thing that we have to actively fight by actively seeking out better tooling, better strategies. You know, we have to like, we have to see our tech as like a thing that we cycle through, not we deploy and achieve. We don't achieve high ground and stay there. It's more like we're on an escalator and we're trying to climb faster than it could, you know, go down. <laughs> yeah, we have to definitely invest in reducing complexity and otherwise kind of paying down our technical debt or else we're never going to be able to keep up. Yeah. All right. Well, we're nearing the end of our hour together. Uh, Jimmy, any kind of closing thoughts? Well, nothing. Uh, thanks you so much for, for having me on. I appreciate it. You're very welcome. Yeah, it was really great to talk to you. That was a delightful conversation that I enjoyed, and I hope you did too. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you have a specific topic you'd like us to dive into, you can reach us on Twitter at Ollicast. To learn more about HeavyBit, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, check out their library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders. Hope to see you next time.